Hey guys, what's up? It is week 270, and to start this off, I did mention it just kind of like in the uh, little like quotes or text that popped up last week. For some reason, I mixed up Roger Spodswood with Roger Donaldson. Not the same guy. One is Canadian, one is from New Zealand, so I mixed up all their movies. I thought they were the same guy. My bad. Um, I do a little bit of corrections on that, but just wanted to make sure that people are, that are listening to an audio version didn't get wrong information, everything like that. So um, let's hop into these reviews, and the first of is a new 4k from blue underground this is god told me to by larry cohen now i had covered this one a little bit ago probably i don't know maybe a couple years back and that was the first time i had watched it and i'd seen most of larry cohen's horror exploitation movies God Told Me To was one that I had heard a lot of good things about, so uh, and I, I just I just missed it. So when I eventually watched it, I did I liked it. I didn't love it as much as I thought I would. But rewatching it this time, I just I got a lot more out of it. Um, probably due to maybe the transfer, the the Dolby Atmos. But I really just generally think I came around more on it and just kind of I guess um, in a weird way knew what to expect. So uh, the plot is a fairly touchy one uh, in New York City. Of course, it's Larry Cohen in New York City. Um, essentially, what happens is is people just start committing these random acts of violence, mass murder. And the first one is uh, one of the most, I'd say, controversial and probably disturbing for people. Somebody climbs a tower and starts just shooting people at random. It's up to Tony Lobianco from The Honeymoon Killers, which is an excellent movie. He's really solid in this as a cop. He gets this guy, uh, you know, he goes up and talks to him. And before the guy commits suicide, he tells tells him, God told me to. And then there's another string of murders, including one of which has Andy Kaufman in it before he was famous in one of the craziest, most ballsiest guerrilla-style filmmaking things of all time during a, a, a parade a police parade right irish police parade deal so so like that's awesome there's lots of crazy stuff like that and it's one of these movies where and like when you ever listen to cohen talk about you know his films and everything as a screenwriter he was a screenwriter more just as much as a director if not more because he did wrote stuff that he didn't direct like the maniac cop films and stuff like that in phone booth but he talks about, you know, he never understood when movies got written in a corner. He's like, how? How could they get written in a corner? You just write yourself out. You're the you're the boss. And you can tell, like, he just, it's like his script. It, it, I don't feel like he has outlines or anything like that. He just kind of goes with it. And, like, he has these messages and all this stuff that pops up in it. And he embraces the themes regardless. Um, God told me to go to these bizarre, weird places involving alien abduction. And, um, you know, like, um, new species. And, and like, uh, almost like... The these hermaphroditic characters and it has a really solid cast of character actors including and, and, and old hollywood people in there uh sylvia sydney who i know from you know beetlejuice she's got one of the best roles in that just because my my age of course you know and it also has people like um richard lynch who's one of the all-time great character actors very memorable for people and he plays one of the most bizarre strange uh kind of performances of his career in, in a long line of strange bizarre performances so it's got this great uh, gritty new york quality it's got really solid cast in here and uh, it just kind of delivers on the weirdness and it keeps going into a direction that you really don't know what to expect um as a whole like it just it's also like i said riddled with people you recognize you might not know their names they're cohen regulars and also just a bunch of people that you're like oh that guy this guy that guy um so, so like i mean this is a really interesting flick it's one of Cohen's different ones. I mean, if you compare it to like It's Alive or The Stuff and Cue the Wig Serpent, all his movies are so different yet so the same. 
So anyways, as far as special features are concerned on God Told Me To, the 4K has a new audio commentary with Steve Mitchell, who I believe did direct King, uh, King Cohen, which is the documentary about Larry Cohen, which is excellent, and Troy Haworth, who I love. Troy's a great guy. Um, and, you know, uh, Steve Mitchell kind of talks a little bit about, you know, Cohen more so when Troy Haworth pops in with, like, character actor and actor information and all that kind of stuff. And also there's an old commentary again with Larry Cohen on here, who's since passed, of course, died a couple years ago, unfortunately. And we have some older uh, features that were on the Blu-ray. They're not super old. They look like they were made for the uh, um, the initial Blu-ray, which probably came out five, six years ago, um, which is Heaven and Hell on Earth, um, Interview with Star Tony Lobianco, Bloody Good Times, Interview with Special Effects Artist Steve Neal, God Told Me To Bone, um, new uh, Beverly Q&A with Larry Cohen. He says a lot of fun jokes and all that kind of stuff. And then Lincoln Center Q&A with Larry Cohen. So got a decent feature, a uh, decent amount of special features on here. Not anything super extravagant, not a bunch of them, but enough. And, you know, Cohen tells great stories about the movie. And he mentions, like, um, Kaufman, interacting with Kaufman and bringing up the, the dub line. All sorts of kind of little interesting, nice tidbits. And it's worth seeing just to see the kind of guerrilla filmmaking that they pulled off in... in such a, a kind of a budget and all this kind of stuff. It's just like uh, Larry Cohen is, is definitely just one of these people that could work his magic. And he, he definitely worked a lot of magic and made it, had a great career. He's one of the most uh, popular horror directors or, or even, you know, film exploitation cult directors. I say he's more of a cult director, although a lot of his films are definitely in the horror genre. But uh, yeah, so like it, it didn't let a, a lot of these budgetary constraints didn't stop him from having alien abductions and, and um, you know, a, a good cast and it being well shot and a great score too that the story goes that bernard herman was uh this was gonna make this score and uh he had done the score for it's alive and everything and uh they went out to dinner the night before and he passed away you know that night and he didn't do the score but like his understudy or protege did the score for it and the score is really powerful and well done and again it's kind of a controversial nature um he always has a controversial nature to his films or he has an interesting kind of idea like the stuff we have the consumerism you know um you know all sorts of stuff in his movies and so yeah, check out God Told Me To on 4K. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Again, the 4K has the feature and the two commentaries and some like you know trailers and stuff. And the Blu-ray in here has the rest of the features. So don't think that they're not on there if you pop in the 4K. Um, again, uh, it has Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision, and uh, it, it really sounds pretty good. Um, visually, it looks excellent as well. So check out God Told Me To. Uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. And again, I think I watched this the first time before I had seen Honeymoon Killers. So I knew Tony Lobianco a little bit, but uh, that Honeymoon Killers performance really is something special. And I think he's really solid in this one as well. And it has a great closing line. Good stuff. Okay, the next one is from Alamo Drafthouse or Drafthouse Films and MVD, of course, and this is another reissue. This is The Keeping Room, and uh, this one interested me because it's it's a period piece. It sounded like right up my alley, kind of a Civil War period piece. We followed a story of kind of like three, uh, two, like two Southern sisters, and it's right like, you know, the, the Union is invading the South and just kind of like, you know, you know the whole idea, you know, Sherman's March and everything where they just destroyed the South and burned everything in its path, and, and we follow these two sisters that are kind of by themselves along with a, a slave that they they seem to, you know, have a, a closeness to these three people trying, these three women trying to survive. And uh, right in the beginning, we are introduced to a couple of Union soldiers that uh, are obviously ruthless, mean-spirited. And um, what happens is, of course, they're going to cross paths. 
Um, and it's up to these women to try to defend their house, defend themselves from these two kind of union monsters. Um, you know, it's not it, the idea of, you know, portraying like the Southern people in the Civil War as, you know, I guess the protagonist is not new. We've, you know, stuff like a lot of the Italian films, again, that's different. You know, the spaghetti westerns with like good bit, all that kind of stuff there. It's a little different. And, um, we we also have this idea, you know, the outlaw Josie Wales too, as well. Um, I, you know, it's kind of a weird thing though. Uh, obviously, at all the time you have these kind of like uh, southern uh, characters, you know, <laughs> like an actual slave with them, you know, and they're bonding together to stop the Union. Um, again, you know, war is an awful thing, and they do show a lot of that. See, the thing about the movie is. Um, the one thing I have a major complaint about, like, I think it's well shot. I think it's well directed for the most part. I don't care too much for the script. Um, it definitely tries to do a deal where, you know, there is some sort of attraction or some sort of, um, I guess you'll say maybe, um, I don't want to say disappointment, but regret definitely towards the lead female and the lead Eugene soldier that like, it has like this tension of course, between them as she stays at one point, like, you know, she's never been with a man and what, yeah, all this kind of stuff there, which I think is just doesn't work very well. Um, besides that, like I, I, these layers, like, don't work right. And there's a lot of these like siloquizing line, like moments where these characters have these big monologues and in them, like, I, I'm not trying to sound rude, but like 80% of the cast sounds like they're reading lines to me. Like it doesn't come off natural. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like they, they're very natural here. Like it, and none of it, like I just had trouble, not that they're the worst actors or anything like that. It just doesn't feel proper or natural to me. Like, especially the lead. I just didn't really care much for her performance or character. It just didn't do much for her me and i don't and that, that it's a big thing in the movie right um the first like five six minutes i was like oh they're really setting this up well and uh, i really think that we're going to get something special i thought it was like just a nice little brutal moment and i was like oh shit you know just to set the pace of the film but uh yeah it's it just this movie as a whole really didn't do much for me yeah i feel like if you want to see something in this vein um jennifer um kent's movie the nightingale is the vastly superior version, although that's, you know, um, in Australia with, like, Aboriginal people and everything like that. And, and I just think that movie is such much, a much better done, more powerful, poignant movie, and, and, and in this kind of the same vein. This one does have an interesting, like, perspective, because we have it, you know, Southern people fighting, uh, you know, against, like, you know, the Northern invasion, and it does have this tinge of feminism in there, too, and I'm sure that other people could describe this better and, and pull out the themes much better than myself, to be honest. But as far as what I see here, it just, it didn't do much for me. Like, it just, it, it felt a little flat, is the way like on paper i'm like this sounds great but as as it delivered it just comes across a little flat for me and i don't want to be too negative about it like it's not a poorly made movie or anything like that um but and a lot of people will dig it but the keeping room really didn't do much for me unfortunately but um don't let that discourage you check out the trailer read some things about it um because it's worth watching and i think some people will find a lot of love for it but it's just like i said it just didn't do much for me personally Okay, the next one up is from Scorpion Films, um, and this is Lone Wolf McQuaid. That's right, directed by Steve Carver, who did stuff like River of Death and, and like Bulletproof, which I think I covered on here, the Gary Busey one. Anyways, River of Death is a lot of fun. Steve Carver, 
he also did drum which i love he he's a director that always casts like really well care like really he has a bunch of character actors in his movies he's obviously like a big fan of peck and paul's stuff and i know he's a film fan like just seeing like him post stuff on interactions and everything like just you could tell this dude loves movies and he always cast well and his movies are very entertaining and fun you know what i mean if that makes any sense so lone wolf mcquade i must admit i'm gonna be honest here i'm not the biggest chuck norris fan but when you have Chuck Norris in your lead, um, he's not going to be the best actor, right? He's not going to have the best screen presence, but Chuck Norris can fight. So you're going to see a lot of good fighting. So so to, to kind of like counter that, right? Like you have always solid character actors to kind of carry the weight in here. And, and we have David Carradine as the baddie, which is fun. But then, like, you have LQ Jones and R.G. Armstrong, which, you know, they kind of they kind of posture, you know, Chuck Norris up a little bit. And other people pop up, too, that are enjoyable. So you're like, well, you know, I, I like that. And a lot of these actors pop up in a bunch of these movies, too. Oh, William Sanderson's also in here. So it's just riddled with people that I always enjoyed watching and, and you know, a lot of older films or even films of this time. So essentially what we have here is he's a Texas Ranger. Uh, Chuck Norris is this Texas Ranger ranger kind of a precursor to walker texas ranger of course At the very beginning we like set up how big of a badass he is he helps these like uh these uh these cops against this like drug cartel and he shoots a bunch of guys and whoops a bunch of ass um but he's a, he's a lone wolf right he doesn't do things proper he doesn't got style according to rg armstrong so he gets chewed out you know he he causes a lot of damage you know and stuff like that so eventually what happens is uh he gets tied up with this kind of this big bad um and david carradine who's like he, he's like getting all these weapons and whatnot and uh you know of course um this is one of these deals though where like the bad guys really mess up like chuck norris's life they kill friends of his they kill a bunch of other people so so it gets dark you know like um they even kill i, I don't want to spoil like a lot but they, you know it's one of these ones that doesn't really take prisoners lots of people get killed lots of like of course you know chuck norris is gonna have his breaking point and whatnot it has like this big wild bunch-esque like shootout at the very end like you could tell you know in, in like the vein of something like you know extreme prejudice came after this but definitely the wild bunch right and um you know i believe didn't um didn't uh the cinematographer who did the wild bunch didn't he um shoot drum as well which i believe is a carver film so i mean like i said this guy you know he's, he's a big peck and paw fan from as far as i could tell at least respected the filmmaking techniques and it shows in his movies which i love so like there's a lot of action there's a high body count and chuck norris does whoop a lot of ass david carradine i like watching he's entertaining and he, he's he's uh he's a good baddie and uh you know whatnot and there's a lot of cheap goons like they take the time you know in a lot of these like body count movies action movies like they'll have like just nameless goons and they won't have any henchmen that you recognize they sprinkle in a couple of the henchmen especially the asshole um who pops up and uh, you know attacks uh um chuck norris's house later on so anyways i thought this looked really solid and again i i enjoyed it you know like i'm not the world's biggest chuck norris fan but like i said i like everything that surrounds him usually in movies if that makes any sense and i will watch his films you know it's not like i'll i'll stick my nose up to him because like i said he can't fight you put him in the movie to fight you don't put him in there to you know win an oscar for his acting it's just what it is you know what i'm saying and he's not the only you know um action star that isn't the best actor in the world we all know this but hey a lot of them i think I just, they're, they're my guys, you know, I enjoy him more, you know, and Arnold is more my type of action star. He's more enjoyable there, but I should mention that this has an absolute, absolutely phenomenal score. The score is in a spaghetti Western style. 
and I thought it was just um, not to hate on this movie. I enjoyed it, but the score is like from like a masterpiece of a movie, and it's in this, and it just elevates this movie majorly. I thought the score was fucking fantastic. Um, as far as the special features are concerned, we have an audio commentary with director Steve Carver, stars Robert Beltrain, LQ Jones, producer Yoram Ben Ami, moderated by C. Courtney Joyner who does excellent work on the film detective stuff. Then we have a brand new on-camera interviews with stars uh, Leon Isaac Kennedy, LQ Jones, Robert Beltran, and producer Yoram Ben-Ami. And to be honest, um, I, I love hearing LQ Jones talk. Um, and he had nothing um, but sweet things to say about everybody on this movie. He, he's like, uh, And he's still alive, man. He's just like one of the last people standing from the Wild Bunch, right? And he said a lot of great things to say about Chuck Norris. And he said, you know, the movie's not perfect, but I'm pretty, uh, you know, uh, critical of everything I've done. But I'm glad I did the movie, you know, and I think it's pretty good. And, and that's like, uh, like Leon, they all have such nice things to say about Chuck Norris. He was such a nice guy on set and all this kind of stuff. And they, they seem to have had a good time making this movie and they have a lot of fun and respect for each other. And that, that's good to see, you know what I mean? So, anyways, I would recommend checking this one out. PG. Like, I would have never guessed this movie was PG. I, I'm kind of shocked, to be honest, because there's a lot of action and there's a fair amount of violence in this for a PG, man. PG ain't what it used to be. I mean, it used to be a completely different thing, right? I would have guessed this was an R. Just I'm, You would have said I would have just assumed a rated R film. Anyways, I know that Chuck Norris didn't typically like to do a lot of violent films at a certain point in his career. I know it kind of came a little later, but this is 1983, um, earlier than I thought, too. I, I don't know why I thought this movie was 87, but it looks way better. Then uh, I love how 80s movies look, but it looks a lot cleaner than an 83 movie you would expect. And so, yeah, it's a little ahead of its time, a little bit sooner than I thought. And um, entertaining movie. Uh, recommended. If you like action flicks, I think you will dig this one for sure. Okay, next up is the Patreon pick. And um, basically, it was Jonathan Wilhelm, and he picked Silent Rage. So I wanted to put these two Chuck Norris movies back to back. Believe it or not, I had never seen Silent Rage. This one's from 82, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think it is actually from 1982, and this one's definitely a rated R flick. Um, and a lot of people compare this, essentially, you know, Chuck Norris versus Michael Myers. Uh, this one is a weird-ass movie, too. Um, this is probably one of the stranger Chuck Norris films I've seen. So essentially what we have here is Chuck Norris is kind of a, a small town sheriff and there's like this big medical facility there. Um, and his partner is Stephen Frust, which is the strangest casting ever. You know, recently I just rewatched The Unseen. We had Stephen Frust in it as well. And I, if you had to, that guy, that actor had one of the strangest careers, Animal House. Um, and then he'd be in like Unseen and then, um, you know, Silent Rage. And then he pops up in what is the one, uh, the Dream Team with uh, Michael Keaton. So this, the dude had, uh, am I mixing up two actors? But I feel like that's all the same guy. And it's just like, baffling to see this guy's kind of weird bizarre career so uh he plays his kind of goofy kind of um you know dim-witted overweight partner and uh we also have ron silver in here as kind of a medical guy and uh, a doctor of sorts a researcher and he uh, i can't think of the female lead in here but basically ron silver's sister who's in and Chuck Norris and her interested, you know, in each other. But the opening of the film kind of has this character who completely snaps, um, this kind of intense guy, and he, he ends up killing two people, and uh, they have him subdued, but he breaks the handcuffs, he runs out, he gets shot numerous times, and he, they take him back to this research facility in this, like, hospital or whatever, and the people had him there as a patient, and a couple of the guys, um, one of which is William Finley from Phantom of Paradise and 
Toby Hooper's eaten alive, decide to pump him with a bunch of weird drugs that they're experimenting on. You know, it's not safe yet. They don't know. But uh, against Ron Silver's wishes, they do it, and it brings him kind of back to life. And they realize that his brainwaves are all messed up, and this creates this kind of silent rage in him. Uh, I, I just The movie's called Silent Rage because he doesn't talk. He's very silent, and he goes uh, about, and he starts to, you know, kill people and attack and whatnot. And uh, one day he's overheard, you know, he overhears the two doctors arguing about Ron Silver not wanting to do this and wanting to pull the plug on him. So he decides to try to attack Ron Silver. And what happens are some, you know, brutal murders, some killings and everything like that. And it all kind of boils down to, you know, um, Chuck Norris having to face off against this Michael Myers style killer um, who basically has Wolverine like regenerative powers which is which is fun it's kind of awesome you know it's part slasher movie part Chuck Norris action vehicle so it's a, it's a strange combination you really wouldn't expect to get but I dug it um, I think it's better than his uh, other like horror kind of combination movie like came out in 1994 Hellbound I would put you know Silent Rage above Hellbound I think this one's better more entertaining to be honest and, and I like the cast a, a lot stronger Ron Silver is really solid in the movie. William Finley is just always such a bizarre character actor. I enjoy watching him. And the other Doctor is, is, is pretty intense as well. Um, the killer is, is really intense, really creepy looking. Big guy, really wide, crazy eyes. Um, Chuck Norris is solid in it. Um, there's a really fun moment where he has this elaborate bar fight with these goofy bikers and everything like that. Um, you know, you got to have a bar fight in a classic kind of movie like this. You know what I mean? It's still, still carrying over, you know, like the classic Western tropes and everything like that that were in comedy and also like bar fights and comedies and all this kind of stuff feels very much of the time. Um, I feel like bar fights, um, when did those kind of stop in movies? I feel like there's not many, you know what I mean? But forever there was always a bar fight, um, enjoyable, but yeah, Chuck whoops some ass. Um, uh, the bad guy is creepy. Um, and, and it's enjoyable for the most part. It's a Mill Creek Blu-ray. So, you know, it doesn't look horrible. It has subtitles. I don't know what more you could ask for. It has, you know, three movies on the disc. It has white, uh, what Lion fever and blind fury as well. Um, both of which I should check out. I don't feel like I've seen Blind Fury, but I might have. I can't remember. And White Line Fever is one I've always wanted to watch. I know it's got Jan Michael Vincent and a bunch of other character actors from Peck and Paul Regular, so it's totally up my alley. As far as Silent Rage is concerned, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. You know, I didn't know. It's kind of exactly what I, you know... I enjoyed it a little bit more, you know, because like I said, I'm not the biggest Chuck Norris fan, but I, I guess I do like his movies. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, you know what I mean? Like just, I, I just, his acting, he's just, he's not a great actor to me and he doesn't have as much screen presence or charisma to me as a lot of the other guys. But hey, you know, like I said, you don't really always watch these movies to see like Chuck Norris's acting skills or you want to see him fight and he does that. Um, and over time he got a little bit better, you know, with the, the, you know, his movies got worse, but he got better. If that makes any sense. You know, that's kind of how it goes with a lot of these actors, action stars or whatnot. Not always, but hey, uh, Silent Rage, entertaining enough. Check it out. I would give it a slight recommend. I enjoy it. This is going to be for everybody. Um, it also should mention how weird of a character Stephen Proust is. Fucking bonkers, man just so weird and so like comic relief but at the same time like back in these 80s movies and stuff 70s movies they killed their comic relief which is so crazy right um yeah so anyways uh, check it out if it sounds like it's up your alley uh silent rage Okay, the next one I'll be a little brief with. So this is going to be part of the summer series. I think there's going to be a discussion on it. And this is 2003's Cabin Fever, directed by Eli Roth. His directorial debut. And I'm not going to say too much about this. It'll probably come up on the show. But I remember when this came out, it really had like kind of a splash in the horror movies. And it was just kind of exciting, you know. Um, I grew up in a, renting stuff from the video store. So I was big into like 70s and 80s horror movies. I held those on like a pedestal.
Barstool really young. Even before that, I liked Universal. So I liked old films. And then when I, you know, you get to that point where you're 13, 14, 15, 16, you start getting to high school and you're just in that really hater phase where you hate everything and you just don't like anything. Everything sucks. It's not like it used to be, yada, yada, yada. And I, um, so then like Cabin Fever came out and it had like this, you know, hype behind it and everything. And I eventually did get to see it. I think I saw it fairly quick when it hit DVD and I enjoyed it. It was just one of these things that I felt was refreshing at the time and I, I dug it, you know. Eli Roth clearly loved horror movies, and it showed. It felt like an old-school throwback, had, like, goofy characters, had just a strange kind of exploitation element, and it was a virus movie. So it, it just spoke to me, and we, me and my friends watched it a lot. We all dug it. And uh, rewatching it this time, you know, it's been a while. Eli Roth's come a, a long way, you know, making films, and I still think this might be his best of the bunch. <laughs> that, I, not, I don't even mean that as an insult, you know. But, uh, you know, it's just maybe my personal favorite. So, like, uh, essentially what happens is it's very much a product of its time, too, as well as being a throwback, especially with the characters and their dialogue and all that kind of stuff here. Um, so we have a group of friends that go camping, and what happens is they're exposed to this strange virus that starts to, like, eat their flesh, and uh, it spreads, and, you know, the local kind of people do not want this spreading, and that causes a lot of problems as well. There's some familiar faces in here. Um, geez, uh... Oh, one of the, um, you got Ryder Strong, Joey Kern, James DeBello, Giuseppe Andrews, um, two people from Detroit Rock City are both in here. Like I said, Eli Roth has a cameo. And I, well, Jordan Ladd, I believe, is the, the actress's name. Both the actresses are, are very, remember, uh, Serena Vincent's the one I always forget, too. Well, Joey Kern plays a complete douchebag. He's very funny. Um, like, I mean, some of the dialogue will probably be a little bit more dated and maybe it will bother some people, but stuff like that. But, uh, I think that in more so, uh, Hostel has more of that, but that makes more sense with the characters, I guess. Anyways, it has a good amount of gore, a good amount of cringe moments, and it has this, like, you know, throwback quality, that love letter that, you know, Hatchet would have as well, although Hatchet, I feel like, is even more comedic than cabin fever but cabin fever also has like that trauma quality to a certain extent just a little bit because you know eli roth coming from trauma it has like some bizarre characters that just do bizarre moments add like a layer of surrealness to it anyways i dig cabin fever i think it's a lot of fun and i think that um it's a it's a movie that's very much a product of its time while being a throwback and still works today for me so that check it out again another one uh that we're covering on the summer series possibly and this is psycho 2 um, starring Anthony Perkins, uh, directed, what, 22 years after the original Psycho, directed by Richard Franklin, who adored uh, Alfred Hitchcock, big fan of him. He also did Cloak and Dagger, and I think he did um, Link and some other movies. I think he's an Australian guy, if I'm not mistaken. I think he did Road Games. Anyways, this also has Vera Miles in it, Robert Leoja, who's great, um, who's, the, who's the Dennis Franz, and who else pops up in here? I know I'm missing um, somebody of note. Uh, but anyways, uh, Norman Bates comes back to, he gets released. Um, he's, I guess it was in a, he's a mental institution and all that kind of stuff. And he goes back to the hotel, which is a horrible idea, right? Um, he starts working as kind of like a short order cook and he meets like Mag Tilly. Um, and he ends up like letting her stay at the hotel and everything. Dennis Franz is like a sleaze ball, perfect sleaze ball in this movie. Um, so he ends up like having trouble with him because he's running the hotel. Anyways, Perkins starts to, you know, kind of go about the big house and everything and, and weird stuff starts to happen. And you find out like Robert Leo's is his doctor and, and there's people from the past that are not happy that, you know, Anthony Perkins or Norman Bates is out of the hospital and things start to like, you don't know if he's slipping back 
to his old self with, uh, you know, his mom and all this kind of stuff. So it creates like a lot of mystery and suspense and it's just well shot, well acted. Anthony Perkins, I love. I mean, he's a great actor and Psycho is one of the greatest horror films of all time and most like uh, the most classic. This one, it, it doesn't really disappoint as far as the sequel is concerned. I'm, I'm entertained by it. It's almost two hours. It's almost like the same runtime as the original Psycho. Maybe, maybe on purpose, uh, purposely so. Um, the ending's a blast. And, you know, as, you know, the kills are pretty graphic. You know, not like, you know, classic Friday 13th, but there's a couple where I jumped. Like, I forgot how, you know, uh, somebody gets something shoved through their mouth. I forgot how brutal that that kill actually was. And although it works really well in the original Psycho, because we we, we know the story of Psycho and everything like that, but Perkins has, um, he's, he's got a certain quality about him where you feel bad for Norman Bates. And, uh, you know, you want him to be okay. And this one, he's more victimized than he was in the first one because we know what happens in the first one, right? This one, you really don't know. So it creates another mystery in the fact that uh, who actually is doing the killing? Is it Norman? Um, is it someone else? Is it someone trying to frame Norman? So it creates a lot of stuff. And the house is great as always. So anyways, Psycho 2, really solid movie uh, written by Tom Holland who wrote a slew of other movies and directed a couple big ones including, of course, Child's Play and Fright Night. Um, so anyways, you know, what, what can I say about Psycho 2? I think most people do like the Psycho franchise, uh, at least a, a handful of them. Um, particularly, I know they like the first three and, you know, probably, you know, returns on investment, you know, as they go on is a little less for people. I, I like the first four films, um, and I, I don't care much for the remake. It's been a while and I never watched Bates Motel the TV movie or the television program that came out either. But uh, as far as the first four cycles are concerned, you know, I enjoy them all to varying extent. The first one, the masterpiece, second one I really like. And it's been a while since the third one, but I remember even really enjoying that one because it's bonkers with Jeff Fahey. Anyways, uh, if you haven't seen Psycho 2, I would recommend it. Um, you could do a lot worse, especially for 1983. Okay, we're going to hop into those 1980 movies. They did this to you! They're trying to turn us against each other! Just look at them! What do they know about friendship, anyway? I'll get them. You watch. I'll take care of those sons Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good Lord. It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. It must have something to do with some obscure sexual writer. With the almost profound respect Getting very careless, blood in your hair. What will we do? You want to look pretty, don't you? Pretty for me. I can't believe you're not afraid. All you have to do is piss on it. Could he care blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. You'll never come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. Evil. Got my leg. Got my leg. I'm here. You're here. There's a fog bank out there. Messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. Demanding everything, including blood. John, I want this material burned. All of it.
crazy one. Remember? In the lake, the, the one who attacked me, the one who pulled me underneath the water. Then he's still there. Used servitude. I think you will all meet again. <laughs> In hell! I'd have mercy on his soul. He was one ruthless son of a bitch. Wendy? Stay away! Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. I'm gonna bash him right the fuck in. <laughs> well, Dad, are you proud of me now? Do I measure up? Huh? My son, my son was a son of a bitch, and he was no good. That's it. My son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. Oh, Cindy, you're gonna die. He didn't find any boy. Major superior. You know as well as I do, it takes all kinds of critters to, to make, make farmer Vincent fritters. <laughs> I wonder who the real cannibals are. And the first one up, more of an exploitation movie, but when you're watching 160, you want to kind of squeeze in some of those crazy exploitation flicks, especially when they had a huge impact, like The Exterminator, directed by uh, Jimmy Glickenhaus. I believe Glickenhaus, yeah, he actually directed this one. You know, he was a big producer, did a lot of the Henelotter stuff, but a lot of crazy movies, big action movies, New York guy, of course, or made his movies in New York. And this is The Exterminator, which is a classic uh, movie. Um, I've always loved The Exterminator, always had, you know, just, it's one of those, like, vigilante flicks that I think a lot of people really do dig, especially the cast here. we got Robert Ginty from everybody's favorite movie, White Fire. If nobody's seen White Fire, I recommend that for Insanity. It's also got uh, Christopher George in here. Who doesn't love Christopher George? Um... Uh, geez, who else? I feel like Steve James is in here. Um, kind of an underrated, like, uh, kind of, I guess I would say action kind of guy. Um, geez, uh, why? Well, I, I just talked about this guy last week. Why am I forgetting his name this time? It's a smaller role, but, uh, of course he is in, um, Friday 13th is a small role, House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, geez, I can't think of his name off the uh, off the top of my head, but he's a character actor, the big kind of guy from Oblivion. He's in here in a small role. So essentially what we have here is we open up with this like crazy Vietnam scene, which kind of reminds me of the stuff in Combat Shock, uh by Buddy, Buddy G, Giannavasi, or how do you say his name, you know, that opening and the, well, the flashback and combat shock, like, cause we know these are like the two movies that, well, there's three movies that come to mind when I, you have these Vietnam movies that aren't actually in Vietnam. You have this, uh, combat shock where they have these scenes. And of course, you know, freaking cannibal apocalypse, uh, also from this year, uh, Combat Shock is not from this year, though. I don't want to confuse people. But essentially, you know, we have, like, this opening in Vietnam. And it's just, like, a, a crazy scene where you see Robert Ginty and Steve James, like, surviving together. We have this crazy decapitation, lots of, you know, planes overhead, loud stuff. And, and then we have, like, kind of more of them coming back to, like, New York. And it, it sets up this thing where it's, like, you know, Vietnam was hell. But, you know, New York's no picnic either. And these guys are working at this, like, place loading, like, cans and everything. They're, they're obviously very close. They're best friends. And um, a couple asshole criminals come in and uh, they start to rough up the place. They, they're like straight goons out of like a vigilante, you know, vigilante or any death wish, you know, that kind of deal. A little bit exaggerated. And um, they, uh, Steve James whoops them 
and uh, on the way home uh, to meet up with Robert Ginty, Steve James is attacked by them and he's paralyzed. This sends Robert Ginty into this rage and uh, he, he kind of snaps and he decides to take the law into his own hands and he attacks these this gang. Um, what are they called? The uh, ghouls or something along those lines. And after that, he doesn't stop. He starts to set his focus on more people, you know, maybe mobsters and all this kind of stuff. And this catches the attention of, you know, the politicians who are the biggest criminals of them all, which is this saying. And uh, they 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 don't want this exterminator out there. Um, you know, some of the places that the exterminator attacks are like these really seedy, gross places like this underground, like child, like, uh, prostitution ring, which is really fucked up, dark stuff there. And like, um, Robert Ginty, like the bad guys he kills, you just, you're cheering him on, you know, it's just like this cathartic kind of deal here. Um, so, so, I mean, like you're always rooting for him. And also on the other side, we have Christopher George, who is also a Vietnam vet. Uh, but he makes a kind of funny comment here um, where he's talking with um, Samantha Eggert from The Brood. She's also in here as like this. She's like a doctor. And he's like, I didn't know you were in Nam. How was it? He's like, it was bad. Not as bad as New York, but it was bad. And, you know, Christopher George also this year was in City of the Living Dead, which is an absolute classic, of course, the Fulci film. And he's really good in this. And, and like, uh, I, I really like his screen presence. He's entertaining, great character actor. And, uh, of course, like, um, the ending of this movie is just really kind of dark in a lot of ways. Like, so Christopher George is probably the most likable, most reasonable character in the film, to be honest. And, you know, the ending, you're just like, well, that's kind of typical, right? Like, you know, as bad as you know a vigilante could be or or crime could be in new york city of course you know who ends up being the worst is the politicians obviously and and at one point they make it a statement that one of the pedophiles who is like raping the kids was a politician he was a senator so like and it's like a blanket politician too like they don't ever get to the deep but so like the politicians are the most it's definitely proving that point and also exterminators got this wonderful kind of theme music like a song made for the movie that's very catchy and and heartfelt um it's got good like kind of New York City style cinematography you kind of have like the setting of the city and all this kind of stuff so it's got a gritty you know New York feeling that uh, I really enjoy it looks good and sounds good from Synapse does it doesn't if i'm mistaken it doesn't have too many features on here as original director's cut featuring more gore and violence and an audio commentary by james glickenhaus which i i would have liked to see a little bit more and if you're looking for more like uh jimmy glickenhaus movies look towards like you know like shakedown with uh, peter weller sam elliott's a fun one or stuff he produced is really cool as well so like uh exterminator really great movie from 1980 uh exploitation flick really recommended stuff check it out uh i'm sure that most people have and they enjoy it Okay, the next one is an Akatsu Erotic Films one, and this one uh, is like White Uniform in Rope Hell, a.k.a. All Women Are Whores. Yes, a classy title. This is probably the one where you'd want to get your pervert card out. Um, Now, this one didn't have subtitles, but I am a stubborn idiot, and I was like, I'm going to watch this anyways. It's short, and I just want to watch another Nakatsu movie for this and just see how it is, and everybody considers this one whore. So this is kind of like counterproductive to be talking about this because, you know, I didn't understand a lot of the dialogue, but when you see one of these you kind of get the gist of it now i don't know i mean there's torture and bondage and all this kind of stuff but i don't know if it's any more horror than any of the other nakatsu erotic films to be honest like sex hunter 1980 is more as more horror to me than this one and that's and some of the other ones um the other one i covered is much more horror than that this one so um essentially i can't think of the name they a lot of them are have like multiple thousands of names so essentially what we have here is a nurse and in the beginning she's kind of like like talking to this patient you don't know if the patient or her friends but anyways they go to meet up she's delivering something to her house 
and uh, she's like this this patient um, is in bondage and they're all tied up and they look like they're in a lot of pain and she goes to help her and there's a gang uh, two guys that are masked and they tie her up and rape her and sexually assault her and I think the movie's trying to get to the point that she's kind of like drug into this but maybe she's interested in being into it not a, whatever and she goes these explicit you know rapes and tortures and all this deviant kind of activity all this kind of stuff here while she like obviously is ashamed by it through her husband and all this there's like some more people that come into it at the end I, and I know like saying this doesn't really help and I don't even have that much to add when I can understand what a lot of the Katsu erotic films movies are saying to be honest so like if this ever gets a release from the Katsu you know from the, the impulse line with subtitles I most definitely will pick it up and, and check it out again because I feel like there's a lot more dialogue than one would expect but you kind of get the gist of it you know maybe possibly intrigued by the the um, the, the, the kind of torture and everything like that as, as equally a shamed and there's like obviously some sort of plot going on and a lot of people more people are involved with it so we have like this big kind of display where all these kind of i think like upper crust people go in to watch this like giant you know bondage fest and everything like that so it is what it is you know i can't give it like a hearty recommend or it's not like a negative it's very typical of these movies but i've seen uh, some of them get crazier i've seen some of them get more you know wild and everything like that and i'm missing like the little intricate details because i didn't have subtitles and there isn't any subtitles for this movie so it is what it is all women are horrors um movie's title not my sentiment um and who cares if they're horrors let them do what they want i'm just kidding anyways um this movie uh it, it is what it is right okay this next one here um is the savior and this is more of like a crime but it does have horror elements you know serial killer prostitute killer kind of deal in here um, this is uh, uh, by Ronnie Yu, who would go on to direct um, The Bride of Chucky, Freddy vs. Jason, Bride with White Hair, or is that, the, I think that's the one. And so, like, yeah, this guy has a decent amount of movies under his belt, um, but, you know, this is one of his early pictures, probably his first solo movie is what I was reading. And, uh, yeah, so what we have here is kind of like a Dirty Harry style rogue cop. You know, he's lost five partners, four of them dead, one paralyzed, that kind of deal. In the very beginning, he has a shootout with these two guys, one of which is in a, a motorcycle helmet. They both are, but one takes a bullet through the motorcycle helmet. Only other movie I saw do that was, of course, Hitchhike with David Hess. Amazing scene. Um, so anyways, we see that. Um, he kind of gets chewed out by the chief, and he's like, you're getting a new partner. Enter this, like, kind of heavy character actor who's in a bunch of these kind of Asian films. So, so, like, you kind of expect that deal, that guy, of course, coming in here. So essentially, they're put on this case to find this prostitute killer who's killing these prostitutes for like an insane reason of course we kind of get into this prostitute killer's like life as well get his backstory and he's the son of like a rich kind of business criminal kind of deal and uh, this guy's uh, mom had committed suicide due to something that the father did and that's why he has resentment towards prostitute all this kind of stuff plays into it it's a very short movie it's about 80 minutes long also our kind of police officer is like kind of sponsoring a foster kid and everything like that so we have like these cute touching moments in between him you know chasing and shooting at criminals with his partner and whatnot he also starts a relationship and gets her involved in trying to figure out who this guy is and and we have a lot of this kind of stuff like you know rich people pulling the strings and murders and stuff and the murders are are, are fairly graphic i thought they were you know straightforward but well done um and i enjoyed this one and i thought it, it moved at a good pace you know it doesn't get too bogged down with a lot of die um, a lot of dialogue or anything it has a decent amount of action it keeps moving like i said and i enjoyed this one i thought it was pretty good um uh, i liked all the performances in here i think that the killer has a, a uniqueness about him this kind of timidness but also you know entitlement um and just uh incel kind of style to him i thought he was good um everybody in the movie solid um and you know it's one of these movies where you feel like anybody can die 
somewhat, um, maybe besides the lead character, but you never know with these movies. You really never know what the hell's going to happen. Uh, in fact, see um, in, uh, first uh, Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind if you want to see something that you don't expect, because that movie's bonkers from this year. So anyways, The Savior, good stuff. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I would check it out if you're into, like, police procedural kind of but also we get into the head of the killer and follow him around a lot um maybe something what was that one blood rage uh by Josito from this year i would say that's more of a slasher than this but this one does have elements and you know police procedural stuff like dress to kill or cruising or something like that but you know like i said it's shorter it's not as um immersive i guess i'll say but uh yeah that is um the savior Okay, the next one up is kind of a heavy hitter from 1980, uh, directed by a legendary cult director and Ken Russell. This is Altered States, starring William Hurt. Um, who else is in this? I feel like I don't want to... Bob Bobbaland and Charles Hayde are some bigger names. Um, Blair Brown, which... Is, and uh, yeah, I think that's uh, the female interest in here, who I'm not too familiar with on first like, recognizing her. I had seen this years back, and I barely remembered anything. This is also based on a book, uh, Patty Chayetsky, so it's a, I feel like it's a semi-popular book. Ken Russell you know great director did the devils one of the best movies ever made right best performance i'll read ever did and that's that's a lot of great performances there so uh altered states oh boy this is such a bizarre film sci-fi drama horror surreal oh weird movie so I don't even know how to go about explaining this, but William Hurt is, um, he's a, he's like a really like intelligent guy interested in a lot of strange like, kind of ideas and whatnot. He likes to go in the deprivation tank and kind of like explore and whatnot and, and, you know, take drugs. And he gets it, it really interested in this idea about, you know, primitive, uh, you know, civilization and somehow tapping into the idea that you can get into like, you know, a, as a society's whole, their memories, kind of going back to that pre historic jelly in your brain and 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 kind of having those moments and, and like this shared experience through the human race and the beginning of time and everything like that so he ends up being led to this area where he um this place where they do these like kind of like old school rituals and use these kind of drugs that are kind of like you know made by the tribe or this this group and he ends up using them and he, he you know hallucinates extreme and uh he gets the idea that he can use this drug plus the deprivation tank to kind of find new experiences and what happens is and learn things about the human race and the beginning of time because uh he's so interested in like all this kind of stuff and it means more to him than anything more than his wife more than his family all this kind of stuff so um as it goes on he starts to kind of change de-evolve if you will and uh we have some really crazy elongated scene chase scene and just like so it adds it's such a bizarre film the visuals are wonderful like sometimes it feels satanic in there sometimes it's just like a brightly colored amazingly like surround sound deal they, the sound mix is great the colors are very good and William Hurt plays a really good performance in here such a, a bizarre you know non-typical lead performance from somebody like he's disconnected and just he's only interested in being a scientist Bob Babylon is really good in it of course he's a solid and I like Charles Haight I've liked Charles Haight since I was 8 years old and I saw him in Nightbreed I thought he did an excellent job in that movie um you know well not lying down dead walking around in my fucking cell dead he's just he's got a great demeanor he's good in this too and it's good to see him in more of a good natured thing and he's like the sense of reason in this so he's always yelling which is 
they cast him well because I, I believe he was in the Hill Street Blues as well as a cop. I don't know if he was the chief, but he probably was the chief, I imagine, yelling at everybody. That's where I would cast him as in Hill Street Blues before my time. But at Nightbreed, he's a cop and he's constantly yelling. And this one, he's always trying to talk them out of everything. And uh, anyways, uh, it's just a really solid, bizarre, weird movie. Um, like I said, I have not read the book, so I don't know how in-depth it goes, but it's got a lot of heavy ideas and, and weird stuff going on, and of course it's science fiction, right, but it's also a little bit horror and a little bit, you know, uh, very psychological, too. Um, I'd recommend checking this one out. If you've never seen Altered States, I think most people that have seen it do enjoy it. Um, as far as the features are concerned, it's only, uh, only a theatrical trailer, which is kind of a bummer, but it's a Warner Brothers, and the surround sounds great. Um, it has a certain unique look about it, you know what I mean? Like, it does like it's not the most like clean looking movie that makes any sense but i think it does look really good at the same time um yeah so it goes over like well a huge chunk of these people's lives and uh like you know the the relationship with his wife is also unique and different and um it does feel like something that could even be like a david cronenberg um in a lot of ways and i mean that as a compliment so anyways altered states great stuff Okay, this next one is one of the Hammer House of Horrors, and this is, I, I think, another Peter Sazdy, who did a handful of these, and this has uh, Delholm Elliott in it um, from House That Drip Blood and uh, Transmutations and a slew of other movies, the Indiana Jones films, and this is Rude Awakening. Uh, it's it's on the first disc of the Hammer House of Horrors, and this is one that I originally saw on the Thriller tape, and I always remembered it. Um, it's got it's got a classic little story here. So Delhelm Elliott is, I don't know exactly where he works. I think he um, is possibly Possibly, uh, where does he work? I think he works as like a, a estate guy. He, he like settles estates for people, houses, and properties, all this kind of stuff. One day, this guy comes in and he tells him that he wants to kind of settle this estate, sell it, get everything put together. He's like, okay. So he goes there, and um, this is where like things start to get really weird. Like the a body falls in the dumb waiter, and it just freaks him out. Then he wakes up at his house, and so like it like you start to realize that like he is like never know if he's in a waking nightmare you know this is before nightmare on elm street which is pretty cool so you never know if he's in a dream or he's in his reality and he starts to go on as more and more and in his dreams he always somebody always suffers a horrible death or somebody suffers a horrible death and then he wakes up and he's like oh that was just a nightmare thank god but he's living these two different lives where he possibly you know has this like different experience in another life and people from that dream world are intermingling you know what i mean to the fact that where he's starting to confuse it and everything as in the audience you're starting to confuse it too and it leads to some really fun moments in there where they like go in a building and it's going to be torn down but then at the end of the film it's just got a really great delivery you know it's got a good payoff <laughs> and i think it works really well so i was like i don't want to spoil the payoff because this is probably the best of the hammer house of horrors to be honest so far i think it is actually the best one um it's the best thought out and just the payoff is the best um and Del Hanelli, it's a pretty good actor, so it all works. I mean, he's a good actor, so it works really well. And so I don't, I don't want to spoil this one, but Rude Awakening is probably the best of the bunch. And I remembered it. I remembered the ending from 10 years old. Had not seen it for 15, for 20 years or whatever, 25 years, and I remembered it. Um, so it left, last, left a lasting impression. Always remember the cover of this one, too, with the awesome claw kind of ripping at the ground underneath the bed. Not a, not a creature feature, but a, still a cover, a good cover nonetheless. Anyways, Rude Awakening, I recommend checking this one out in the Hammer House of Horrors. If you only can watch one so far, I make it Rude Awakening, to be honest. Um, my favorite of the, the bunch so far. Hey, guys, we're here to do... You ain't blind spot for you because you picked it. You picked uh, the 1971 horror anthology from Amicus Pictures, mm -hmm. The House That Drip Blood. 
Written by Robert Block. Um, this is directed by a guy who doesn't typically do horror films, so I'm not too familiar with him. I'm sure maybe he's done something I've seen. It stars... Uh, that's such a I'm sure this thought my watch. Uh, <laughs> Delham Elliott um, from a slew of movies, including the Indiana Jones flicks. Um, and Which Rude, I've never seen. Yeah, Rude Awakening, The Hammer, House of Horrors. Uh, also has Peter Cushing, um, Josh Ucklin, Christopher Lee, Ingrid Pitt. So it's got a it's got a great cast and a mm-hmm. lot of Hammer regulars. All these people, every single one I mentioned, um, I think was in a Hammer flick. I don't yeah. know if Delham Elliott was, but I'm sure he was. I know Josh Ucklin was a Crescendo, Peter Cushing, of course, and Christopher Lee, and then Ingrid Pitt, big Hammer stars there. Mm-hmm. So boom, yeah, uh, yeah. This is an anthology, like it has four stories in there. The wraparound is essentially this uh, guy who's showing people this house. It's all the house named Stoker. <laughs> Um, and he's uh, talking to a police detective who's completely disinterested in um, the history of the house, basically. He's out there looking for a missing actor, and Stoker goes over three stories until he gets to the final story um, that this detective's interested in. So the first story is one of uh, with Delham Elliott, um, and this one, uh, it's well acted uh, by Delham Elliott. He's a writer in this big, weird gothic house or whatever, and he's struggling. He has writer's block. Kind of reminds you of The Shining a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. some Shining vibes. Um, so essentially what happens is um, he starts to hallucinate the killer from his book and sees him in corners and everything, and he starts to snap. And, and you start to suggest that he possibly is going to turn to the killer, yada, yada. I called this one right yeah, five minutes yeah, in. Is... And the thing about these ones is, um, at the time, I'm sure it was just like really like, oh, wow, that's so different and fat, you know, but... After watching so many gaslighting stories and everything, and a lot, especially film noir, they're all gaslighting stories. This one was very predictable, and mm-hmm. for me, and that's not it's hard to with anthologies because sometimes they come early, and you know, right. So, as far as this one, this was my least favorite, which is surprising because I don't think it's the least popular. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I feel like that the ever like two or the other three, ever three, yeah, because there's four in this one. Yeah. I, I think that they're far superior than, than this one the, the, like the first one is like the weakest where i'm like all right i don't want to watch all of this today but let's carry it on to the next week <laughs> no and so like it's not horrible it's no. like for me it's like a three out of five story and yeah. delham elliott he's a good actor um but again it's just one of those deals like well it's got to be two things and i think it's this and then it was that and i was like see right. and there's a little stinger at the end that's okay um the next story um mm-hmm. is the one that really kind of surprised me it actually was the one that was just uh I don't want to say it's my favorite. I, I think this third story is my favorite still because Lee is such a different character in it. Um, the second one was great. It's a waxwork horror story, which I love, which right. is very comedic because most of the people leave the house and it's like, it's the house. And then like at the very end, the guy has to explain why it's the house. So, so anyways, Peter Cushing is, um, I think he, he's a lonely guy. He decides to stay in this house. Um, and one day he goes into town and he wanders into this wax museum and uh, it's a really great scene. The guy who actually shows him the museum, he oh, he's in a, fantastic. He's in a bunch of stuff too and I, I can't think of what he's from. Um, but you, he's movies we've watched. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peter Cushing spots, you know, a wax exhibit and it's it's of a, you know, a beheaded woman and they turn out to be all murders and the wax, similar to wax work later on. And uh, of course, um, he sees this head and it reminds him of, of like an old love. 
and he just becomes fucked up and obsessed with it after that. Things get more complicated when an old friend in Josh Uckland, who's tremendous in this movie, he's right. so good at acting with Peter Cushing. And he's, if anybody doesn't know, he's uh, famous from everybody because in Lethal Weapon 2, he's the main baddie from South Africa. Diplomatic immunity. Every time I see oh, him, that's him, I have to say it. Oh, yeah, he's very good at it. And uh, yeah, so I, it was really a treat every time he pops up in an older movie. I'm like, oh shit, it's that guy. I like that guy. So um, he's also in Citizen K- uh, Citizen X. He's got the. Is this man crying? He plays the <laughs> Russian guy. Oh, he's so good. I never realized that guy's that guy's really good. I never realized how good he was. But any anyways, he shows up and like they have this back and forth. They start talking and they go in the town and they go into the wax museum. Complicates things and they share a, a history involving this woman. And, and like the problem with anthologies is you talk about the story and you don't want to spoil it. You can just talk about the acting and the the dream sequences. But how do you feel about this one? I think that this one was pretty good. I, I, it might be... I think it... it yeah, between the Cushion one and the Lee one, that is probably my, my favorite of the two. Um, yeah, I think this one... It, it was more straightforward, but I think it was presented in a way that... Yeah, you know how it's going to end, but it's... I like that it wasn't Cushing that went mad with it it was his friend like his friend was like his cushing and it's like no we don't want to go to that museum well he didn't know either and like he didn't <coughs> want to be like go go in because he could be absurd you know but when right. his friend went in there he had the same problem and he was like Shit. right and it's his friend that is the one that actually gets like pulled in deeper than what cushing does and you know how they ultimately meet their fate um and, and like the twist is so so bizarre like like can i can i spoil this um, one i think so because i feel like a lot of people have seen this one and it's surprising like, that you, we you're already right you're already gonna know like like what what the twist is i actually the thought they were gonna it. kill each other because it was gonna right, bring back right. the old memory of them fighting over this woman that right but it, it wasn't it was not um the fact of the matter is it's like the end of the wax museum this was his wife and like he just builds this wax museum with a replica of his dead wife, and then every time somebody looks at the wax museum or the wax figure, the one that he built, he kills them for looking at his dead wife. It's like what? It's it's really fun, right? Right. And he puts their head on display. Right. It's just really cool. Uh, yeah, that one was one of my favorites, and I like wax mm. museum horror. Um, Troy Howarth does the commentary on here, which I listened to and I enjoyed. He mentions all the possible waxwork influences before it. Mm-hmm. It's just. Um, I would say that waxwork trope and circus, like backgrounds and, and waxworks and circuses, I always am kind of invested. I just like the wax museum aspect. It's just creepy. It's unique. And um, I love the circus aspect, too. It's just something that's a little special. They're not done very often anymore. I think they're, you know, kind of old relics. Right. Um, and they just fit really well with horror films. And this one is, is no different. Um, and the third story, which I think this is, you know, I think that it's the best performance. I think actually Josh yeah. Uckland and uh, Christopher Lee are my favorite performances in there mm-hmm. and i think lee steals the show because as we know christopher lee is just one of the best of all time and he usually is uh he could be a very stern angry man in charge demanding he could be funny um he could be suave um we've seen that in the gorgon he's very yeah. suave and very cool in that cool-headed and just very likable he can be evil but it's not very often and they point this out to where christopher lee's scared right and but still stern but still scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and his performance is weird and different. And, and it's just essentially um, he has a young daughter and he calls in a teacher to teach his daughter. She's very, um, you say, sh- I don't want to say sheltered, but neglected. In isolated. Ways. Isolated. Um, not neglected in that way, but she can't have toys. She can't have 
much meaning. She's scared of fire. You kind of feel where this is going, and uh, mm. yeah, some bad things end up happening on this one. I think that this one it probably has like like the greatest potential to be an actual standalone movie. Movie. Um, the the acting is amazing. Um, with all three principal characters, the little girl, the, 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 the little girl, and Christopher Lee. Yeah, and I love the the one shot is perfect because we're spoiling it. Where like he's like get. He calls her his name. He's like, get get the get the doll from her. And she's like, is he crazy? And she looks out in the hallway and the daughter's like in there and it's like in the distance. She's right. got the doll already. She takes off. He's like, shit. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this one is, might be like the most realized. And I think it's the funnest. It's got the good, it's got a good setup too. Right. You know exactly what's happening to that doll. Exactly. You know exactly what's happening to the doll. Um, Great way you don't have to show the gore either. You just right. see the, what happens to the doll and you're just like, oh, that's even, that's brutal. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, I, I don't know. Sorry. Seem gone. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry about that. No, you're fine. No, you said the most realized, the most that can be. Yeah, a... yeah, but I don't, I don't know. Again, like when you're reviewing anthology. I'm sorry. I don't have much to say either. Right. It's like, like that's the problem with when you're watching anthology. It's like, how, how deep can I go into it? You know? Did you think that she was going to uh, be a witch or a vampire? Which one? I, I... Oh, witch. Yeah, witch. Because yeah. it does say voodoo on the cover. Oh, it does. Yeah, it says vampirism, voodoo, vixens, and something like that. Oh, okay. so it does the 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 quad four or whatever you know the V four. There was some. There was something about something really early on, like let me think, like oh, she's a witch or, you know, like something witchy was going, and I just can't re- remember exactly what it was. But I think this one it does have the best setup. It has, I think, the most potential to be realized as a full film, um, and, and I think the acting is best in this one. Um, the, the the Cushing one I think is fun because you, just with the, the chemistry between uh, Cushing and, and, and what's his name? You know, uh, Auckland, how do you like the setup here? The wraparound. Do you like the wraparound? Because a lot of the other Amicus ones, like the two big ones um, that come to mind are the ones directly from EC Comics, Vault of Four and Tales from the Crypt, or I believe they're just kind of like, why are we here? They're just like walking through like this like thing, and then like a door closes and they're like, what's going on? Let us out of here. It's like, don't you want to hear your fate? It's like, what fate? And then it's just like, and then it like cuts back after every story and it just goes into the character's face and they're like, they're all scared shitless. Right. Like, Isn't eh. Burgess Meredith in one? He's in Torture Guard. Is that <laughs> the one where he's like, like the fortune teller oh, guy and he like burns the money? Torture Garden is really fun because, where is it? I got one, I got a better edition up here. Yeah. Um, I have the old Mill Creek, but yeah, this is another Amicus one. And Jack Palance in it. Yeah, he's obsessed with Poe. He's like, Edgar, Edgar, Ellen, Poe. Yeah, this one's really fun. Actually, that, that, see that I remember like watching a bit of that one, and that one is exactly what it was. It's like I'm going to tell you how you die. Well, Tales of the Crypt is <laughs> even worse than Voltaire, but I love those. Those are th- right. I love Voltaire Tales of the Crypt. So this like, one, this one tries to like I think tie it together a bit looser. Um. It's very similar to what we did with Slimy Little Bastards, where it's like... And I had not seen this one. No, no, we, we hadn't. Um, and, and the plot is the house, and which was the whole apartment thing, so it's like... It's right. Oh, oh, yes, it's the same damn movie. It's cheap to use a location, right. that's why. Sa- same acting it. caliber, too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the... Um, maybe maybe in the movie, within the movie of the fourth one, it's right. the same acting caliber. But the, the problem with this one was like, like the guy was like, it's that... It, both the renter and in the beginning, he's talking with another detective, and it's like it's the house. The house is killing people. It's like, not really. 
Actually, at least one of the murders occurs outside of the house. And then he has to dump the exposition, which I think is the same problem we have with Slimy Little Bastard. And then dump the exposition. But as far as the fourth story is concerned, did you want to say what this one's about? Fourth story is, um, well, we couldn't get Vincent Price. I said that right when we were watching it. And then in the commentary, Troy Howarth confirmed it. Right. Um, but it's basically like an old, washed-up, hammy actor who's, you know, relegated to low-budget films, and he's tired of the inauthenticity of, like, the costumes and the sets, and so he goes to this, like, you know, magical shop, you know, and he, and he buys, like... Because he wants his own uniform. He wants his own uniform, and he buys this, like, antique cape that looks just like the costume cape that was on the movie set, which then plays later on into the story um to, to be a real vampire but the cape is actually possessed by a vampire and in wearing it at the stroke of midnight he becomes a vampire ingrid pitt's also in it and, and, ingrid pitt's and in it. this actor and ingrid pitt are definitely playing into like themselves and being hammy and having right. fun with it which is cool yeah absolutely ingrid pitt you know is um you know so, so, so she you know she's an actress but the twist is can, can we talk about the twist? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, because this is the only thing that Ingrid Pitt's got. The, the, the twist is Ingrid Pitt was always a vampire, and she wanted him to get the cloak so he would become a vampire too because he always played fantastic vampires, and they just, you know, want to have a big vampire family. And and I feel like this character is a precursor <laughs> to Peter Vincent from Fright Night. You think so? I mean, he's similar. He's he's a hammy actor. Yeah, I mean, he yeah, he's, he's a, a hammy a cult actor, act, uh, a cult expert, right? Right. But the one thing, but he also reminds me a little bit of Leslie Nielsen, uh, kind of playing as right. a straight man here, like, but being goofy at the same time. Um, the one thing though is funny is the house is what you know, it, it's what it makes it. At the end, the guy says mm-hmm. that. So like, whatever you're scared of, it becomes it or whatever. Even though the first story involves somebody else being turned into it, so it's like whatever. I don't know how that works. And the second one's outside. The, the I mm-hmm. feel like the whole city is. But then the third story, the fourth story. What happens? Well, the third story too makes no sense that that works because, because she was a fucking witch from Hereditary, right? And then the fourth story, unless it was like, uh, unless it was Christopher Lee's um, paranoia that did it, right. could have, and maybe his wife never was a witch either. And then the fourth story, it, it makes even less sense because at the very end, do the the people that previously lived there have to die before it takes on a new host? Because the the cop wasn't scared of the vampire, right? That you don't admit unless he what, which is silly. The, no, the the wraparound, like like the whole like it's the house, the house is killing people. Like no, it it, it really it's really not. The house isn't really doing much of anything, honestly. It's, not really. No, it, it's and there. like he comes out and he's like, "You see what happened? Is it's a reflect? It's like what is this galaxy of terror? Where it's they're like, like whatever you're afraid of happens. It's like is this a reason to just get some poor woman raped by a slug? Yeah." It, it, no, no, it's, it's like, well, quite honestly, the guy's just doing terrible background checks when he rents out these yeah. houses and he gets them to a bunch of, like, crazy people. And he's so lethargic about it, too. Right. He's, like, he's just like, oh, I guess another one's dead. I mean, like, the cop was... hey, If we remade this in the 80s, it should have been Glenn Shadix. Oh, it's absolutely. He'd be like, Tim Burton's house that dripped blood. But the MTV video game generation. <laughs> he would have been great. Uh, we just recast this movie by Tim Burton made oh, in 89. Yeah. <laughs> It would have been fantastic. I mean, it's still fantastic. I'm just kidding. I mean, no, it would have been a bad movie by Tim Burton, but oh, yeah. we want Glenn Shadix, so we got Tim Burton. I mean, I, I want Glenn Shadix in every role possible. So, you want to go first? Sure. The House That Drip Blood in this book, which... They're on tape, James O'Neill. Yeah. Out of four stars. Title and author I have yet to commit to memory, and I never will. 
Uh, House Fetchship Blood, 3 out of 4 stars. I'm not reading all that bullshit. Tout Amicus Anthology, scripted by Robert Block, about a mysterious Psycho. country mansion with an eerie influence on its various occupants. Elliot is a writer menaced by a character from his imagination. Cushing is a retired businessman haunted by a beautiful waxworks figure. Lee is a stern father convinced that his angelic little daughter is a witch. And Pertwee is a hammy horror film star transformed into a genuine vampire by an old black cloak. Good fun with the final episode, especially enjoyable thanks to the humorous performances of Pertwee and the voluptuous pit. Voluptuous. Voluptuous. Was that the um, guy who kept talking about like cleavage in the Hammer movies? I One of these remember. books kept talking about. That's all they talked about. Remember that? So uh, John Stanley, Creature Features, House of Drip Blood, four out of five. Good amicus horror film produced in Britain, written by a prestigious master of horror tales, Robert Block. The macabre meister interweaves four stories to recount a strange mansion's history. The main thread is an investigator searching for a missing film star who checks out previous tenants. Story one, a horror writer, a chip off the old block, <laughs> is haunted by his creations. Story two, ghostly figure haunts a wax museum managed by a lunatic. Story three, witchcraft and voodoo dolls with Neary, Don Porter, and Christopher Lee. Story four, the investigator discovers what happened to that missing star and wishes he hadn't. Directed by Peter Dufel, Peter Cushing, Ingrid Pitt, Delhem Elliott. Yeah, so I, four out of five for myself. Yeah, I mean, I'm mid three. Three out of five. Seven and a half to eight is where I'm at out of ten if we go to it. You know, and, and like I said, anth- anthologies are hard. You know, like the first one, like, is, you know, a dud to me. Um, second and third are, I think, better and a bit more realized. And, you know, pl- plus has actors I like. And the fourth one is, is generally kind of fun. See, I don't even want to... F- give you Tales from the Crypt because I don't think you deserve it. I don't think you'll appreciate Tales from the Crypt. The only um, Tales from the Crypt movie I've seen is Bordello Blood when we watched it in science class. I... And I, my teacher didn't even turn the TV around when the tits were on the screen. The whole like, movie is. He, he, the TV yeah, it, 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 the it, was, it was just, just tits flopping around and here I am you know, trying to dissect a starfish. Hey, but, they never. This is a fake story. But then <laughs> this didn't happen. And then, like, we had to dissect the squid. And I think this is when we were watching one of the scary movies or something. I can't remember. Basically, like in science class, we just like dicked around for like an hour and a half, and our teacher would just put in whatever like audacious movie he could think of watching at the time. But like, he couldn't get in any of the squid for us to dissect, so we used like food grade squid, which already had all their organs removed. So there was literally no point in dissecting the squid. <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with this guy? Toledo Public Education, guys. It's yeah, like, okay, don't... dissect these squid. I'm like, there are no organs in this squid. There's nothing in this squid. We're just cutting up flesh. I'm watching a movie about some guy cutting up flesh. Uh, so next week, we're going to do, I think, the last 1980 movie for you. We'll do Dario Argento's Inferno. 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 The second of the Mother of Tears trilogy. Um, the Three Witches, Three Mothers, I should say, not Mother of Tears, mm-hmm. The Three Mothers. Um, yeah, this one um, doesn't have a Goblin score. It's Keith Emerson, but it's still it's really good. Very memorable score. Um, Mario Baba worked on this movie. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it was the last thing he worked on, and he unfortunately died. Amazing underwater sequence. He helped with Dario, because I believe Dario got sick during this movie. So, um, anyways, uh, Inferno. It's a classic from 1980. One of the, the probably one of the only movies you hadn't seen from 1980 that I well you didn't see a couple but this one I think you will at least appreciate I know you like Suspiria but you don't love it I like the you know we're not like, doing this 
I, I'm not going to say it. But I'm, I'm losing subscribers it. every yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, but I, I like the remake better. I think it's more realistic. I like both of them. They're completely different. They are completely different. But you got to go OG. We can skip it and watch the remake because you, you actually understand what's going on. Stop it. We're out of here. Bye. All right, let's get to these questions, comments, concerns, all that. Um, basically, I asked you guys um, one argument uh, you're tired of having or hearing in the horror community. And these examples like zo- infected versus zombie, the Toby Uber direct poltergeist, all these kind of things that just drove me completely crazy. Is it horror? All this kind of stuff. Now, when I asked this, essentially people just used uh, a lot of it as like just a place to just say random opinions that are hot takes. And I hate those fucking hot take fucking things. Am I the only one? Those, I don't give a shit. I always talk about this. So it did happen um and that's fine some people do consider these arguments or they have these arguments or these whatever so it is what it is i made my own bed i'm gonna sleep with it so i'll read them a lot of them are good though a lot of them are you know arguments that we're all doesn't matter what you think about them you're just tired of having them i feel like we all feel like everything's been said to death so here we go oh Nick Mua, greetings, sir. Dave, your show remains a delight as ever. Sorry you had to deal with hecklers and argumentative folks when I was young and peeps respected each other and ran. Not true. I mean, it's just the internet. You don't got to look at somebody's face when you say it, so it's just much more disrespectful. Kind of making this a little sociopathic. One argument that's older than Bob Barker. If you're watching a movie that has a rape or abuse in it, you're a rapist yourself or thinking of becoming one such horseshit, but this is nonsense. It's tougher to kill than Jason Voorhees. So obviously he hates that argument. Name the worst tagline you ever heard. It can be for an excellent movie. Oh, what's the best and worst thing about 80s nostalgia? Um, oh, geez, these are good questions. And name the worst movie your favorite actor was in. Ah... Uh, Geez, I don't have. I, I feel like I don't know if I have favorites actors, like actors I adore, but like you know, I don't know if I have an ultimate favorite actor. You know, um, so every actor's done some bad movies. Warren Oates is a great actor. I like him a lot, but I can't think of any that he's truly done that are horrible. And, and like, even if the movies aren't great, his performances are wonderful. So I don't really know. Like, I don't think I've ever seen one of his movies where I thought it was bad. So I really don't have any for that. But. Let's say uh, Nicholas Worth is another character actor I love. Um, one movie that I think he did terrible. You know, like a terrible movie he's in, I'm sure. I know there's like B-movies, but I love those too. So I don't really have an answer for you. Um, let me think of an actor I like that's in a bad movie. Um, Groom Lake, Tom Tolls. There we go. Uh, it's it's a super low budget movie. It's not even the worst movie ever, but you know it's a low budget movie and I love Tom Tolls. Not great. Um, so... Name the best and worst thing about Asian nostalgia. Um, the worst thing for me is people won't admit when they have it. Like sometimes nostalgia really plays a factor into it, and, and um, it's okay to have it. It's okay to use it as an art. You know, I. But sometimes you need to admit when you have it. You, you need to be like, well, you know, I could tell I have some eighties nostalgia here or whatnot. Or there's like certain things that people will just won't admit. Like sometimes, like if a movie's really sloppy in a lot of places, they'll just uh, and they love it. They just don't care. They won't admit that the sloppy moments are there, and that's probably because they're blinded by nostalgia. So people being blinded completely by nostalgia is the worst. But uh, the best thing is just having that warm fuzzy feeling taking you back somewhere where uh, you know you can never quite get there. Nostalgia is always bittersweet for me because you start to get that like itch of that feeling and you want to dive in more, but then it's gone by the time you do it. So it's like this bittersweet thing. You know, because you can't recapture that moment 
100%. And you keep trying and you're trying and trying. It's never going to happen. But you feel good for a second and it's gone. So that's the best and the worst thing in itself is nostalgia it's itself, you know, the feeling it gives you. Um, and name the worst tagline you ever heard. It can be for an excellent movie. Oh, I mean, there's probably so many, like, awful taglines. You know, one that I, I love the movie. It's one of my favorites. And, like, all the great 80s horror movies, of course, nostalgia 80s, yeah. But, um, like, there's so many good taglines, right? Um, Demon's tagline is, like, eight hours long. It's like, they'll make they'll make cemeteries their cathedrals. And, and uh, it's a cool tagline, but it's also like, hey, guys, you're not writing a book. This is a tagline, right? Um, so, so like, there's that. Um, um, but there's long taglines I love, like Night of the Demons. Um, anyway, so D. Gulag, love it. DD, we need more directors. And that's not the worst tagline. That's just one that came to mind that I think is not as great as the movie. Uh, DD, we need more directors like Rob Zombie. He makes the movies he wants to make. It doesn't care if he pisses someone or some group off. Um, Humanoids from the Deep will always hold a special place in my heart of horror. It was my first, uh, my one of my first horror movies I remember watching. And the creature and sleeves just had me craving more. It was the movie that really hooked me to the genre. Uh, Ken Coakley, you're right about people who troll other people for their taste in movies. It's all subjective. What bothers me is people who blow a fuse when someone that uh, something that was part of their childhood gets remade or rebooted. People were up in arms over the 2016 Ghostbusters reboot. Here's my unpopular opinion. Not a Ghostbusters fan. I saw it in the theater in 84. I was 18, and all the funny bits were in the trailer. Not being a fan of the original gave me a clear point of view. The 2016 version was terrible because it wasn't even remotely funny. But two can play at that game. When Star Wars fans didn't like the sequels, the studio, the producers, the directors, and the cast blamed it on The Phantom Menace. The movies, um, the fandom, fandom menace, see that? The movies were ill-received because the fans are evil, not because they killed the legacy characters and replaced them with flat characters. So, you know, they blame the fans. I mean, but uh, Star Wars does have a real toxic fan base, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that all their movies were good either, right? (laughs) I mean, like, it's kind of funny. Both things can be true, right? Um, I first saw Out of the Blue as a video rental in 1985 or so. The movie was originally released in theaters in 1980 to capitalize on punk craze. I watched it because the star Linda Manns, R.I.P., was also in the movie I love called The Wanderers. That's a Philip Kaufman movie, if I'm not mistaken. There was another punk movie that came out that same year called Times Square that I did see in the theater. One of the characters similar to the character Manns plays in Out of the Blue. The character in Times Square was played by Robin Johnson. I remember her well because I had a crush on her after seeing Times Square, which also starred Tim Curry and J.C. Quinn from Maximum Overdrive. Back to Linda Manns, she was an incredible in The Wanderers and Out of the Blue. She was also in the game she passed away last year at the age of 58 r.i.p as for the sleepaway camp review i i couldn't believe that jeremy never saw it as much as i liked the movie i don't know how mike uh kellen went from turning in an oscar-worthy performance at midnight express to this or how robert earl jones james dad went from sting to sleepaway camp Christopher Collett, who played Paul, had a decent career in the late 80s. He headlined some movies such as Firstborn as well as The Manhattan Project. And I'm glad you brought up Mike Kellen um, in Sleepaway Camp because I didn't mention him being in uh, God Told Me To this week. And so it's like his, Mike Kellen had a bizarre career as well, man. Super weird stuff. Chris Harper, it sucks that most of the cast and Austin Corpses have passed on, but much love, bro. Yep, thank you. Wasted time to control shop. Do you think if Rob Zombie wasn't a musician, his films would not get heat? Thanks for keeping videos coming out every week. I really do think that a lot of people do hold that against him, the resentment. Here's the thing. If you become like a superstar in the horror genre, like people, like a lot of people love you, a lot of people hate you, and you touch a a classic like Halloween, you're going to get some hate no matter what. But like if you look at Eli Roth or Rob Zombie, I mean, there's probably legitimate reasons that people dislike Eli Roth, Rob Zombie, whatever. You know what I mean? But they get a lot of hate and it, maybe it's just because that um, sometimes even Quentin Tarantino, not in the horror genre, but when the directors seem to be passionate fans of it, I feel like 
sometimes fans hold resentment towards them because maybe they see themselves in there. Like, I can do that. I could do a better job. You know, I knew this, all this kind of stuff. And not everybody, you know what I mean? There's a lot of people that I genuinely think just hate Rob Zombie's movies. So, I mean, like as far as that, any I Ross movies, you know, so it is what it is, but, um, I don't know if he would get them as much hate. I don't think so because we had that. Remember when like in the nineties, there was always like rap people or musicians in movies that just popped up in movies and they didn't have any acting experience before. Like they weren't, you know, like a people just would hate on them they're like oh it's got a bunch of rappers in it and they would just bitch and bitch and bitch about the movies like and it was a lot of young people and everything now nobody seems to give a shit like and i'm glad i mean it is what it is if they suck they suck in it i mean you'd call them out and say, they didn't do a very good job but a lot of times you know they become really good actors like ice t you know i mean i don't know if he's like an academy but he's good i enjoy watching him and Ice Cube, too. You know what I mean? Like, I enjoy watching And Tupac was always solid in the movies I saw him in. So it's not like they all just came in and did a shit job either. You know? Like, they, I mean, Busta Rhymes, of course. You know, it is what it is. Um, but subjective, perspective, collective. Let me start saying, great content, brother. The one argument I'm tired of most has to be the elevated whore nonsense. People are going to hate no matter what. I have plenty of films I can't stand, but there's no need to argue. I try to see every perspective and also try to watch most films twice before I give a final opinion. The first time watched, I uh, the first time I watched Hereditary, I didn't like it, but. It, I was in a bad time in my life. Now it currently sits in my top five of all time. And I'm, I was born in 77. Crazy, right? LOL. I say love what you love, no matter who is trying to browbeat you. Take care, buddy. Look forward to all your videos. Thank you. I, I feel, you know what I've noticed about a lot of movies that like are newer ones that I end up thinking are really great. You know, it takes time. But when I walked out of Hereditary, I wanted to talk about it, but I also didn't know how much I liked it. I was like, this, I don't know if I felt like that or that felt a little weird. And then like, it, it's a movie that, if you you want to have discussions about it, like it or not, but as you go back, there's interesting points to talk about, and that's usually the movies that last. You know, like a lot of the '70s movies have points to talk or bring up and stuff like that, and I think Hereditary has it, and I think that's why it it's an interesting movie. It's, it's also really well made, and it's one of the grows on you. You know, you think about it, and. It's hard because like a lot of these movies, classic movies, they've been with you forever. Society, you know, the horror group, whatever, has told you they're great. And when you see them, you have that perspective. And maybe you don't love it at first, but it grows on you. You think back on it. You see movies that have been inspired by it. So it becomes like part of this, you know, this pop culture thing, this this, this piece of the puzzle that's a big piece too, right, that fits there. And it really matters to the horror genre. And it ends up mattering a lot to you because you have these connections to it. But when a new movie comes out and you're just like, how do I hold that? I liked it maybe i did you know it's hard to determine how good it is to you or how good it will be so it's just really complicated and it's all subjective right um it's hard for me to put newer films in the last 10 15 years in my top favorite horror films of all time because i i feel like i have like a lot of my favorites i've had a lot of time with right and even if it's a new watch and it's an old movie i put it in and i know where it stands in terms of context and how it aged at least to me um so then we have the red room. I'm actually kind of excited to check out Rob Zombie's remake of the monsters, even though it's apparently nearly three hours long. That's crazy to me. Like, and I have no problems with long run times, but like, you know, some movies feel like they don't need to be three hours. And that's when I start to get annoyed. Um, I'll still watch it though. I'm, a, I do like Rob Zombie's movies. Dr. Snuff humanoids from the deep is one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Remember skipping school just so I could sit down and watch it for the first time. My mom was not happy when she found out. Haha. It was worth it. Worth it. Uh, 10 room bizarro. Love you, man. Thank you for your movie obsessive loving atmosphere. It's comforting. Thanks. Oh, and also if you don't know, 10 room bizarro has a YouTube channel and he reviews movies. Yeah. He also loves movies as well. Darren Hartley. Hello, Dave. Oh, 
Raging Fury was released in UK on Polygon Video in 1987. Sadly, like most things in Britain during the 80s, it was cut 1 minute 36 seconds. Also, the Media Blasters DVD from 2004 was missing some scenes, running to over 2 minutes, which I presume this error was done during the authoring. Hopefully now Arrow's Blu-ray can give Hell High the love it deserves. Regards, JB. I sure hope so. GB. Travis Lintz come. Also, for questions, I know you and Jeremy love Jessica Harper. Have you seen the Tales of the Dark Side episode, Tear Collector, starring her? It's a strange episode. Not one of the best, but she's great in it and has a satisfying conclusion. I do not recall. I used to watch Tales of the Dark Side on television a lot, but I don't remember if I've seen that episode. And it doesn't ring a bell right off the top of my head. So uh, I have the Tales of the Dark Side series here. I need to watch all of them. But, you know, time. Um, so then we got J- J- Jeff Keith. I'm tired of remakes. Most remakes are named... Uh, and only name brand cash grabs. And I basically said, are you tired of the argument or tired of remakes? I'm asking about arguments. You're tired of having or or hearing or having with people that happens. It never fails. Every time I ask a question on Facebook, the first, there's always somebody in there that answers it wrong. I asked your favorite or your least favorite 1980 horror movies, not the eighties from 1980. And like people just answering correctly. Like it's almost like as a collective society, we forgot how to read. Or comprehend. And I don't, I'm not mad about it. You know what I mean? It is what it is. Uh, Michael Fisher, um, he says this argument I hate, what he's talking about there, that people hate remakes. Salvador Funkenstein, I am tired of the Rob Zombie one as well, but more so how terrible they thought this Halloween 2 was. We get it, that it's not for everybody. There are worse entries in that damn series. People were out there giving grief for Rob Zombie's films for over a decade now while Marcus Nisbel was out there churning out some not so good remakes in that same time span. No doubt. No fucking doubt. Um, Rakesh Brown, this is a good one, Dave. The horror purists that are against films like Necrostorm using digital effects mixed with practical versus no digital effects. That's a good argument, too. The people that constantly, people bitching about CGI versus digital, whatever. We've heard everything you could say, right? And we all have our opinions, and that's fine. But the argument, maybe it should be put to bed. Uh, Mike Mitchell, I'm tired of who would win in a fight between Slasher A and Slasher B. Fun thought experiment in the 80s, but now so burnout. We can put that to bed, too, I think. Chris Farrell, uh, I agree with this one. Every horror group on Facebook has multiple of these. Week in and wake out. Um, and Michael, I love these. He loves them. Peter England, you already gave my answer about Toby Hooper's Poltergeist. How LL. James D. Cox, is there an episode where we get 22 shots? Uh, angry Dave crossover? Maybe. Maybe. Um, Renee Roller, Faster Slow Zombies. Troy Haworth, I'm tired of hearing how overrated certain films are. We like what we, what I, we like it what like but we like what we like but just because you don't like a certain film doesn't mean it's overrated this can work for underrated too but but i'd sooner hear somebody come up with a fresh argument in favor of a disliked film like yes like i'm so tired of people just posting am i the only one that hates texas fuck off man we don't care like sometimes books have been closed on movies and like if you don't have anything interesting to say about it just saying you don't like it is just stupid lisa marie cart people who complain on remakes like it's the end of the world agreed Jesse Wright, um, even Hitchcock remade The Man Who Knew Too Much with Jimmy Stewart, and that remake was a better film. He's like, Jesse Wright, I'm tired of hearing about characters in horror films, especially slasher films, making dumb decisions. One, people panic when they are in life and death situations, so they behave irrationally. True. Two, there aren't a lot of good options when you're attacked by a six foot seven, 300-pound Hulk with a big machete or an axe. Three, armchair experts are jerks who will criticize no matter what. If a character runs away, they're a coward. If they try to fight the killer, they're stupid. I would bet money that the people who complain about the characters in horror films acting stupid would immediately wet their pants and curl up in a fetal position if they weren't in real life or death, if they're real life or death situation. Uh, Meacham, fight or flight, normal reactions is quite real. People that don't mention this don't understand normal horror tropes. That, yeah, to like that kind of thing is like this. I always say like if you start to complain about that stuff, you already were out of the movie. You already disliked it, right? It's the same thing with like one little moment of CGI. You already hated the movie. 
they already lost you somewhere. Um, the only time it bothers me is like when people are actively dying and then like somebody's a practical joke. Like it's like, why are you making practical jokes when we're dying here? Like we're on, you know, that's weird to me. Um, okay, and then also, um, okay, Charles Meacham. I'm tired of seeing people use the terms uh, terms vibes when referring to A24 production films or films that have I, I ironic or depressing endings. A24 vibes, ick fucking cringe see like we're also getting to the point here where i do mention this in this thread that people are not doing like talking about arguments or like that they're tired of hearing or having they're literally just mentioning like opinions that are annoy them or like hot takes which is what i don't like so which i just am trying to get away from so it's like turned into like what i don't want but it is what it is right jamal potter um hipsters though what more do you expect Jeremiah Kip, I'm tired of the entire elevated horror discussion as a reduction of the genre and a dismissal of entire subgenre subcategories of horror films. We can choose both. Jonathan Edward Smith, I'm cool with zombies versus infected things since they're usually unique to individual films. It's more generalizing arguments like remakes suck and I hate Rob Zombie stuff. I'm sick to death of. Me too. Sean Donahue, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Oh God. Chris Farrow agrees. Um, it gets less quirky every December. Um, he says, I agree it's a Christmas movie. Just tired of hearing it. Yes, Dave, we realize it's not a horror movie. Jesse Seitz, um, dude, the whole discussion on the movie has made me hate it so much. Um, I'm so sick of that. It's not funny, but the joke is dead. It's it's rotting. It's rotting in your fucking cellar right now. It's stinking up your fucking house. The joke's not funny anymore. We don't care. No one gives a shit. It's become like the getter done joke of the fucking movie community now. Uh, Stefan Minder, Minder, sorry, would Night of the Demons 57 be a better film with a demon was shown? The answer, of course, is no. Uh, Mary A. Lilly, probably dangerous to say, OL, but I'm tired of the 80s being heralded as the best decade and being used as a nostalgia bug in horror films, TV. The overload of appealing to make that air is me exhausting. Now, I was like, is that an argument or just something you hate? Um, I, I'm not trying to upset people or anything like that, but he says, a little bit of both. Admittingly, I do dislike how it's used, but I also several groups where they treat the 80s like a golden pin, uh, um, pinnacle that can't be touched. It does end up exalting and someone would accept other oh, decades. Um, so I accidentally forgot to put Seymour. Uh, Jamal Potter, especially the 70s best. So it basically turns into the thing. Uh, the thing there though is that we tend to have the most nostalgia and love for the era that we grew up with so the reason that you see that so much in the groups is that you're probably dealing with people of the age uh were the 80s a sweet spot of course of course of course um we got uh steven for uh fernandino is this sov or shot on dv um that can be confusing though right i always get tired when it's like this is sov it's like but see this is not even a, a argument though tom brooker the there's no original ideas left argument a statement as if you bother to look oh that's so true tired of it there, tell me some original movies argument come on we know there's good movies made every year we certainly gravitate towards certain ones right see Verdinsky, um agreed none of these people watch carousel or even reviews for carousel Two complaining it was too original instead of being a slasher film jeff penal sick of fans of victor salva versus uh, salva haters and jeepers creepers debates just stop watching a shit and move on Michael LeBlanc, is Cabin in Woods actually a good film or just extremely overrated fluff? I've never been a fan. Wink. Uh, J.A. Edge, I'm tired of hearing out Conjuring and get all... See, like, these aren't even necessarily arguments. These are people just hot takes. I gotta stop reading these. Michael My Cassidy Botwin, Michael Myers isn't in Halloween 3. Robert D., I'm tired of Who's Better or Jetto or Fulci. They're both awesome, so who cares? Um... Edie Edward Wood, How X is Equal to Sex Chainsaw Massacre. Neil Machindo, I'm tired of people pretending Evil Dead 2 is better than Evil Dead... Uh, evil Dead is better than Evil Dead 2. Rodinsky, all remakes suck as several films they love are remakes without even them knowing it. 
the thing in her blob. Also, most remakes seem to be fine at worst. I feel it's more rare for a remake to suck. Um, Carrie Struthers, I'm frankly sick of hearing everybody prattle on about zombies and how they move. Most folks who say they can run got some piranha-type oral device that he helps them consume food. Um, is the younger generation makes me think of horror as a social or solitary experience in regards to viewership. James Bickard, is there anyone uh, more po- annoying or poorly dubbed than Bob in a house by the cemetery? No, end of discussion. Maybe not poorly dubbed or I'm so over Bob, like people complaining. I do not give a shit. I don't hate Bob. Leave Bob alone. I've seen so much worse on a daily basis than Bob. Um, Damon Rickard, unpopular opinion, but I don't like Ari Aster. Um, or the whole elevated horror thing sucks. Yes, I'm I'm just bored of reading how much people don't like things instead of post that celebrate films. I agree. I agree. Like I never get mad at somebody for liking something I don't like. I'm like, cool, maybe I'll check it out when somebody's just hating on shit all the fucking time. You're just like, okay, we get it. And it just like people seem like they hate everything. Matt Floor, uh, Damon Ricker, this. This irritates me more than anything. I watch horror to enjoy and have fun. Me too. Damon Rickard. Exactly. Under all categories of horror, there's films I like and films I don't. I don't blame it on the subcategory and then don't want to blast them over the internet because of my opinion. People put months on their lives into making films and no one sets out to make a bad one. So I leave it at commenting on films I enjoy. Aaron Mazzola, the Rob Zombie argument. For sure, it's a pointless argument. Rob Kopinski. Yep, Rob Zombie as well. So freaking tired of it. Most of whom probably couldn't tell you one thing about the guy's personal professional life except his movie sucks. So over it. Halloween 3 with no Michael. Yep. How about the argument that Carpenter's The Thing is a remake i just personally uh do not agree for so many reasons mostly i'm tired of hearing about it but that's just me i am tired of the argument that uh friday 13th 5 sucks because there's no jason what are we four i swear what are we four years old um lee bishop i'm tired of people trying to classify jason Voorhees as the deadite david luton i'm tired of hearing people say the shining is overrated and stephen king adaptations are crap Seriously, though, I think Rob Zombie and Eli Roth hate fest are more anno- most annoying. Both directors have made very good films. Lacey Lou, that scream ruined the horror genre. Now, I have heard this argument before, and that's everybody knows Lacey Lou. She loves scream. That's her thing. And, like, do you blame Halloween for the bad slashers that came out afterwards? You know what I mean? Like, Neil Lemoy, who said that? Um, Jeremy Summerall, it's definitely did in all the clones that came after. Sure as shit tried, though. Huh. I mean, it's not a movie's fault if it's ripped off. I mean, and horror was in a bad spot at that time anyways, so. Uh, Bill Rod, um, Gabriel Jewett, people say the 90s is the worst decade for horror. Um, basically, they argue a bit about it, um, but, you know, he says the first half of the 90s was good, and I, I, I agree. I think the first half of the 90s is fine. I think when we start getting later 90s, early 2000s, we get in a rough batch. Um, Joachim Johansson, Walter Peck did nothing wrong in Ghostbusters. We have uh, some arguments here. Matthew Cantor, I'm tired of hearing how physical media is dying or dead. Hello, if there are companies putting physical media out, then it's not dying or dead. Ta- Thomas Filio, I've been hearing how media is dead for the last 10 years. It's still around. I agree with you. And Kopinski agrees. Um, Bill Rodriguez, the is this horror not argument? Yes, the only time I ever even partake in that is if it's uh, a joint pick. You know what I mean? Uh, Morton Suzek, I'm tired of people praising Ty West. That's less of an argument. But Neil Machino, what's all this talk about mold being the best horror movie of all time when it's clearly a, a sci-fi horror comedy hybrid? Okay, get the category, your categories right, people. Neil obviously directed mold. It's a very fun movie. Jason Howard, I'm tired of complaints about remakes and reboots. No, the new one is not going to erase the original or ruin your childhood that you're 35 years removed from. You don't have to like the remake, but it's also not going to murder you in your sleep. It's perfectly fine that it exists. In fact, even if a remake is terrible, it will often shine new light on the original, bringing new fans and maybe even a shiny new re-release with tons of bonus features. Uh, Matt Flower, to be fair, the Poltergeist remake stabbed me and took my wallet, which kind of makes me laugh. Steve Friedel, Rob Zombie, 
Zombie is a genius and brilliant filmmaker. Toby Hooper did direct Poltergeist and The Vision of Spielberg, and it's a virus that's called COVID. Uh, Matt Floor, when people brag about a movie, didn't scare them. You're an adult. You know it's not real. You're not special. LOL. Yeah. It's like, not even scary, though. It's like, what are you, fucking six? I know what you're saying. Tony G, uh, Tony the Dead, vampires don't sparkle. Who cares? Like, some vampires sparkle, apparently. I mean, the, the rules for movies is, is, is weird. Mike Merriman, then we need to support garbage just because it's horror. Good choice. Um, pretending nostalgia has zero to do with how we judge rank movies. Another good choice. Uh, Mary Lily uh, disagrees, though. In my case, really, it doesn't. I just four films I view through the lens of nostalgia, none of which are horror. Robert Mazzola, maybe people thinking all horror movies are the same. Jesse Seitz, people who shit on every single horror movie made after 93 and go hard on people who actually enjoy these films. Just admit you only like 10 movies from the 80s and maybe aren't that big of a horror fan. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Also, people get mad at film because they don't see themselves in it. Legit one dude's complaining about Girl Works Home at Midnight. Fucking hilarious. Yeah. Like, I don't need to relate to the characters. I just want to be interested in them. I don't even have to like them. I just want to watch them. If I want to watch them, you know, that's that's what interests me. That was funny. Jesse Sides coming in with the heat. Um, Kevin Keegan, all found footage and f- uh, uh, fake doc horror um, movies suck. It's lazy filmmaking. I'm deaf tired of hearing that shit. Thank you. Agreed. There's some great ones. I mean, Cannibal Holocaust, one of the best horror movies ever made. Um, Jay Wall. People calling hostile torture porn and the whole censorship question about films like a Serbian film in Atros. Where's the line? Should there even be one if the if the footage shown isn't real? David Gibson. I don't like that. Is this or is or isn't horror debate? It's hard to even use logical points in the argument because it's so subjective. If you don't think Sound Slams is a horror, that is fine. But just shut up and enjoy a great film. Scott Crawford. I'm tired of hearing people praise 80s uh, horror saying they don't make good horror movies anymore. The 2010s beg to differ. Also, hot take, 80s horror is way overrated. Ooh. I mean, every decade has great years. Um, it is what it is, right? And not every movie comes out. Like, in 1980, we look at the list, and it's like, that's a banging year. But not all those probably got released widely in 1980, even though they say they are. Like, 1980, 1982, 1985, 1986. You know, but 83 is not a great year. 2015, that's in the 2010s you're talking about. Yeah, it's a great fucking year. So many good movies in that year. Um, Mike Merriman, Scott Crawford. Whoa, I sort of agree. Not that I don't love 80s horror, but I think the decades are definitely sold short for sure. Um, yeah, Scott says, yeah, I also love 80s, but people love the decade coming. It's, not, it's good, but not that good. Um, most of my favorite movies come from like 70s, 80s, 90s, just because, you know, I've had a lot of time to spend with those movies. Um Zach Puccinelli, tired of hearing how great Return of the Dead is. Um, deep down, everyone knows it sucks. You're literally the only person I've ever heard say that. Like, that's just like one of your balk. Like, that's that's a hot take, anyways. That's not an argument people are having or at all. Uh, Jonathan Wilhelm, that you and George Eastman are not the same person. We know the truth, Dave. Wish I was George Eastman. I'd have more money. Um, but I wish I was still younger. So, Je- Jeff Gardner. Um, well, ex- with the exception of Lord of Sam, Rob Zombie's films aren't too bad. I just couldn't get to that one for some reason. Dave Dunbar, that remake suck. Um, Rob Kopinski. I do have another. May seem a bit superfluous, but um, it tires me um, to no end that when anyone does their hearkening back to the good old days, those rental days, why is it that Blockbuster seemingly is the starting point? I'm old enough to remember that mom and pop days when video stores really meant something. It's It was because of the likes of Video Factory and Blockbuster that most of my beloved shops, specifically Movie World, where I met the likes of Fulci and Argento, came to their end. Hearing the word Blockbuster sometimes brings back bad memories. Not a biggie. I doubt anyone else suffers the same. No, you're 100% accurate. It's very funny, you know, that people are like, well, Blockbuster, and then, like, literally, they killed the, the competition, all the places that used to carry it, and they used to censor their fucking movies, too. So it's like, kind of fuck Blockbuster. Like, 
you got rid of the competition and then you got died too and you wanted people to feel sorry for you. It's just kind of like the serial killer getting put out, getting shot down too. It's just like, well, I don't feel bad for you. I know that's a, a weird, exaggerating, hyperbole bullshit. But you know what I'm saying. Like, it's kind of like um, that Blockbuster's like, well, Netflix is getting us out of business. It's like, and you got everybody else out of business. Like, it was like when Walmart started complaining about Amazon. It's like, get the fuck out of here, Walmart. I hope you die. And then I hope fucking Amazon die. You know what I'm just saying? Like, it is what it is, right? It's just like, you can't fucking <laughs> do the same. And then when it happens to you, get mad about it. It's just, a, it's a, it's, it's, a hypo, it's, it's a hypocrisy at its finest. So this week's question of the week, if I get back up to this sucker, since we talked about God told me to, I want to know what the most dangerous shot in a film, uh, a, a stolen shot is in a film. Like guerrilla style filmmaking. Is it Debbie Dawn where Jim Van Bever climbs the fucking wall? Or whatever is it? Is it a Larry Cohen movie? What is the most dangerous shot in a movie? A stolen shot. You know, that's what I'm going with. No permission. Guerrilla style filmmaking. What's the most dangerous stolen shot in a film? Um, yeah, let's hop into this update. Okay, let's hop into this update. First up, of course, John Waters' Pink Flamingos had to have this. I'm super happy to see Criterion put it on a Blu-ray. Uh, yeah, it was just a matter of time, right? Uh, this movie is fucking bonkers to believe this is on a on a Criterion Blu-ray, it's just, it's just great. An exercise in poor taste. No shit. We got a, um, a Kino order that popped in. Stunt Rock. Um, you know, I don't think I've seen this one. A Bryant Treacher Smith film, Australian director. He does a lot of cool action, a lot of flicks. Yeah. Who's in this bad boy? Um, nobody I really know, to be honest. Um, so yeah. Anyways, I had heard this one's pretty cool. Director of Man from Hong Kong, which is a cool movie. We got Savage Sisters here by Eddie Romero. You know, did a lot of movies in the Philippines. Got freaking Sid Haig in there. John Ashley, of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this movie looks like a lot of fun. Probably a woman in prison movie. I know I've heard of it uh, just in passing. Never actually had watched the thing. But uh, yeah, 1974. Then we have some uh, horror TV movies here. We have Ants. It happened at Lakewood Manor. Uh, yeah. I think these are originally had the DVD here. This is a 1977 one. Kino's been putting out a lot of TV movies. I've got Suzanne Summers and Brian Dennehy. What? Let's go. Oh, this got a big cast in here. Robert Foxworth, Linda Day, George, Bernie Casey. That's really cool, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's getting attacked by freaking ants. They all have slip covers too. Tarantulas, The Deadly Cargo. It's another TV one that I had. I don't think I ever did watch it though. Um, who's in this bad boy? Claude Atkins, uh, Deborah Winters, Burt Remsen, yeah, Pat Hingle. It's got a nice cast too. Also, Tom Atkins, Howard Hessman. Man, these things are really, really well cast. These animals attack deals. And then the last one, Tear Out of the Sky. It looks like uh, Grizzly Adams on the cover there. Uh, yeah, it's a nice slip cover. Who else? We, who got who got in this bad one? Dad Haggerty. That's the big one. Lonnie Chapman. You know, okay, it's Charles Hollihan. Um, just nice little cast again. Um, so 1978. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a quick update, but hey, it's got some decent movies in there, of course. We're going to hop back to the video. Okay, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Yeah.